0: Thank you, Darshi. Welcome, everyone. Uh, yeah, my name is Kyle. Um, I smile and forget people's names. So that's what I do around here. I uh, hope you guys have had a, a good long weekend. I realized over this long weekend that I'm like aging rapidly because a few of the things that I really like to do over the Australia Day weekend was like listen to the Hottest 100 and watch lots of tennis. But now I don't even want to stay awake till the end of the tennis matches because they go through too late. And like, I'm listening to the Hoss 100 and I don't know what a Doja Cat is. So it's like, I feel like I'm getting old really, really quickly. But hopefully you guys had a a good long weekend. Um, I'm going to be finishing up our our Time with God series. Um, So the the message uh, today is uh, based on sort of, I guess, some just devotional readings. Um, and it's a fairly practical one Uh, and then after this we'll be starting our more than able sort of vision series for the year and I'll be kicking that off uh, next week Um, but yeah today is just uh, the finishing up of the time with God sort of devotional series and uh, I was listening to a, a podcast not too long ago about a, a car manufacturer, or the history of car manufacturing in America, so it was a very exciting one. Um, and at one point, one of the men that was being interviewed in this podcast talked about how um, he still looks out for the cars that he helped manufacture uh, back in the 80s. And so back in the 80s, he said that like they, they did a lot of like hand manufacturing, like they actually used their hands instead of these really cool machines to make these cars. And so we were saying he like still looks out for these cars that he made like 40 years ago because he says, I view them, he says, when I see one of my cars that, is, uh, that I built still driving around, knowing that it's nearly, been nearly 40 years, that's my legacy. That's my legacy that I did a good job, uh, is what he said, which I thought was pretty cool, that something he did 40 years ago is still kicking around. And like I know for us 25-year-olds, 40 years feels like a really long time. <laughs> yeah, but um, I was thinking of like imagine building something like 40 years ago, and it still it still works and it still still operates. Like uh, I actually painted the ceiling of our, our ensuite a couple weeks ago, and I honestly am surprised every morning that the ceiling is still up. So like building a car that still drives 40 years later is pretty great. And so today I want to speak a little bit about that idea, that idea of of legacy, uh, the thing that sort of lingers on after you've gone. Um, I guess the idea sort of popped into my head. Last year was a pretty heavy year for a lot of our staff members, uh, with different things happening in people's families, and so you sort of think about legacy and the things that linger on. And then, as we're sort of planning this year, and we're thinking about next generation stuff, as is sort of in my wheelhouse, we're thinking about the next gen and sort of what do we what do we pass down onto you know these young people? What what is the legacy that we leave behind? What do they pick up after uh, we've you know left? Uh, and so I've been thinking about this, this idea of legacy. And then yeah, last week, Pastor Paul shared about, you know, uh, a very day-to-day impact that the legacy of his grandfather left in like one of the board meetings um, type of thing. And so that was sort of rolling around in my head. Uh, and the passage I was reading uh, comes from Judges, Judges chapter 2, and it sort of all sort of worked in together. And so that's what I'm going to be speaking about from today. So uh, the passage is Judges chapter 2, uh, verses 7 to 10. Uh, It says this, it'll be on the screen, but it says this. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that, the whole generation that had been gathered after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So I'm going to be speaking uh, sort of based on that today, but I might just pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for you. We want to thank you for your goodness and your goodness to us. Um, Lord, I just want to thank you for this community of believers that we get to come together and just uh, experience um, you interacting with each and every one of us. Um, Yeah, Lord, I pray that you'll continue to speak to us as you already have been doing. Um, Yeah, Lord, just soften our hearts um, and help us to become more and more like you. Amen. Um, so a little bit of context here uh, just to explain what is going on Um, in in the book uh, just before Judges we have the book of Joshua Uh, and throughout that book we read of God helping the Israelites take over the land of of Canaan Uh, we have the fall of Jericho by God's power, the crossing of the river as God holds back waters, Uh, God like literally making time stand still as the Israelite army defeats like five Amorite kings and the whole land is in and conquered by Joshua leading Israel and then the land is divided amongst all these different tribes. Um, And so that has just happened and then Joshua passes away at the ripe old age of 110 which is a fantastic inning and so finally this land is is settled after decades of traveling, after decades of battles, after decades of building different communities and cities and, and the tribes. And so obviously, when we think of Israel nowadays, there's some different dynamics at play. But in this context, it is this special occasion in which God is using his power to move his people into a position of blessing and a position of inheritance. And in verse 10, we read, after that generation, after after the generation of Joshua, who had gone through all these things, they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for them. And this doesn't mean that they weren't aware of what had happened. Like, it's not like no one had ever spoken of what had happened. It doesn't mean that the people didn't have any, like, knowledge or information of of history. It is certain that they knew the stories of God freeing the Israelites from Egypt, of giving them victory over other nations, um, giving them these great, amazing fertile lands to live in. They were aware of these events in the same way that I'm probably aware that there's a science realm known as quantum mechanics or quantum physics. Like I know it exists, but I don't know what it is. And so the Israelites knew what God had done in the past, but it didn't actually play any part in how they lived their lives. They were willfully ignorant of what it meant to know God in the same way that Joshua knew God, which is quite incredible when you, when you think about it, like literally just one generation removed, and the people had moved away from being found under the direction and protection of God, just one generation. And so this story is actually a precursor for a cycle that Israel, uh, that Israel would find herself in for many, many years to come. Uh, the passage gives us an insight into how this happened. Um, and so as you go through, uh, so there's an assumption uh, made by most of the commentators on Judges that this book was actually written uh, quite a while after the death of Israel's great and godly leader, Joshua. And so as you read through Judges, any mention of Judges is usually, I guess, a bit of a flashback um, to Joshua and the time when the people were staying close to God. And then the very next generation, the very next generation is tagged with a phrase that you'll read constantly throughout the book of Judges, and it is the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you read through the book of Judges, you'll find that phrase over and over and over again. And keeping in mind, this comes directly after all these amazing things that you read, God and Israel doing together in the generation just before them. And so, reading this, you have to ask yourself, how can the very next generation of people move so far away from where the previous generation was? A commentary that I read prompted this thought. It said that the experience of redemption and rescue was not presented as infinitely renewable. Or in other words, the story of God's rescue and the story of God's salvation was not seen as something that was important and relevant for the next generation, but rather it was seen as something that occurred in the past and will always forever remain in the past. If something is renewable, it means that it can be used again and again and again but that experience of redemption and renewal was not presented to the people in this way. It was not an ongoing thing that was happening in the present. It was something that happened to someone other than themselves, and the rescue had already taken place. And so this starts to remove this connection of what had happened. So there is a lot of push in culture to keep a connection to the past so that the future generations do not lose like the richness and the culture of the history. Uh, in an article I was reading about uh, Hawaii and the government there, they're introducing teaching in schools to bring back understanding of the history, and they said, connection to the history was important to the children because it not only taught them about their history, but it gave them a foundation to stand on in the present and an understanding on which, how they could view their future. Their connection to the past allowed them to better prepare for the future. And so we have the same movement here in Australia uh, with our indigenous history and the education and even in New Zealand with the Maori people and how the history and the language are actively taught in the schools. There is an emphasis on understanding the past and letting the richness of our history sort of help us step forward in a good and healthy way. And this is what the Israelites had lost over the course of just one generation. They had lost their connection and understanding of why the nation had such an intertwined relationship with God. And they forgot why the history was so connected with God, and their present life, their current day life, showed this disregard for God. And it became the basis for how they then viewed their future, which is what we saw, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. A present and future generation had forgotten God. And it is sort of heartbreaking to know That something so important as a relationship with God and a reliance with God can dissipate with the passing of just Joshua and the elders. It took just like Joshua and his group of homies to go and then an entire nation sort of steps away from God. And I think that that's a pretty like pertinent warning for us to to heed. To not take for granted that faith and tradition will just continue generation to generation especially if we are not intentionally making sure that we do a good job of passing on legacy. And so, I guess that is why the idea of legacy and what we leave behind is is so important. Uh, And legacy is the name of the memory and the influence that we leave behind. Um, This guy always comes up when people talk about legacy, like Steve Jobs, the founder and brain behind Apple, he left a legacy Uh, People remember him for his drive, for his persistence, for his innovation, for his quite aggressive ambition. Uh, But people don't just remember him for that, but they also live out and act out those traits. Uh, Jobs left behind a company in itself that embodies his style. Like Apple as a company continues to function in a certain way because of the legacy of Steve Jobs. And so legacy has this lasting influence, this lasting impact uh, based on what Steve Jobs had, for for better or for worse. And I, I should make a note here that when we're talking about like legacy, I think people often assume that we're talking about like leaving a legacy of when you're an old person. And by old people, I mean, like, anyone over 35. Like, you know, that is wrong. If you are old enough to think, am I old enough to lead a legacy or leave a legacy, then you are old enough to have a legacy. You know, age isn't this barrier. Like, you don't start thinking about legacy once you tip over into a certain age bracket. My, my core officer, the, the senior pastor at Campbell Salvo's Brian. He once said that, we should live in such a way that oh, sorry—we should live in such a way that our faith affects not only this generation but the next one too. Our influence should be deep enough to travel more than one level. That our faith should have a legacy that has a lasting effect, and that is what we should be striving for. And I think when you think about that, that's that's pretty—it's a great idea. It's pretty cool to think that the way that we act and the way that we speak and the way that we live has the potential to change lives for years to come. And I, I think that we should all pursue and have a desire to leave a legacy because of our faith. I think it's actually a godly and selfless pursuit. Uh, it's not like this egotistical power trip where you're just so full of arrogance that like people should still talk about me when I'm gone. Like I think I think the idea of having influence and, and legacy is is sort of the opposite because legacy comes with sacrifice and legacy comes with cost and commitment. Leaving legacy is a costly endeavor, but it is a worthwhile because you're sowing into the kingdom of God. And so I'm gonna go through four ways. There are four points to this uh, message. Thank you, Darshi. Um, There's a lot of ways that you can do this, and this is a very, very practical message, but there's a lot of ways in which you can leave a legacy, but I just wanna go through four points. And I'd suggest that you find, you pick one or two to think about and to work on. Uh, There's a lot of things we can change in our lives, and we can get overwhelmed if we say yes to everything. So just consider the points and see if there are ways in which you can start changing your life so that you start to impact your legacy, Um, and hopefully in a way that will benefit people from years to come. Uh, So I guess the first one is, be an example of the character traits that you'd like to, to develop in your children whether real or fictional. Um, you don't actually have to have children, but like pretend you do, you know? Whether they're real or fictional. Uh, a lot of these a lot of these points feel like they're based on the view of a parent, but there's lots of young people or people around us that are easily influenced by what we do. So if anyone's influenced by what you do, you can just in your brain think of them as your children, okay? So be the example of the character traits that you'd like to develop in your children, whether real or fictional. Um, and so I guess, Back in the day, uh, I think I used to have all these ideas of what I would really love to see in my children. Um, So I wanted them to be like ridiculously smart, but but also have a really good sense of humor because the humor sort of negates the nerd factor. Because I didn't want them to be nerds, but I did want them to have the nerd brain. So I figured if you have a really good sense of humor and the nerd brain, then you just negate the nerd part and you get the brain. So I was, all right, so work on those two. Uh, there's more. <laughs> I also wanted them to be like really, really sporty, like super sporty, but happy to lose if it means they're having a good time. So it's a good one, yeah, yeah. Um, I also wanted them to be able to do heaps of push-ups. Um, got a list here, it's pretty much like my New Year's resolution, but for my kids. Um, I wanted them to always say no to drugs, so so far so good. Um, I wanted them to never feel pressured to watch all of the Fast and Furious movies, because I think that's a big waste of time. But I do want them to be able to quote all of the Lord of the Rings movies off by heart. So, you know, ebbs and flows there. Um, But these aren't really, I guess, the main, main qualities. They're like the second category qualities, but they're still pretty high, but they're not the main ones that I actually want my kids to have when we talk about legacy and influence. Like, I guess what we want to see in our children is we want to see a love for Jesus. Like, we want to see children that have a heart for humanity, We want to see in our children a desire to see others one for Christ. We want to see in our children healthy relationships that seek to to give and to love instead of take and tear down. We want to see children who, who stand up for their beliefs and stand up and support others. We want to see leadership in our children. And there is a saying that more is caught than taught. Uh, I guess if you watch TV and you see those ads that talk about, like, bad driving or or drinking or smoking, and they often show, like, the the children watching the parents, and then they sort of show a bit of a timeline, and then the the kids end up enacting out what the parents are doing. There's even one where, like, I think the dad is driving and he's doing something reckless, and there's, like, puppet strings, and it's going back to the kid, and the kid's doing the same thing that the dad's doing in the car. And so it's like, more is caught than taught like the people will watch you not just children but people who are easily influenced will watch you and if you want to see children that have a love for Jesus well then you need to have an outward love for Jesus if you want to see children that have healthy relationships then you need to seek to have healthy relationships and you need to love instead of argue If you want to see leadership in your children and our children, then you need to show leadership instead of passivity. The amount of influence that you have simply by the way you choose to act is tremendous. Make a choice to be an example of the traits that you want to see in our next generations. And a good way to check on the character traits that you are passing on is to ask, what would other people say is important to me? You might even want to ask someone what do you think is important to me based on the way that I act? And you might be surprised by what people answer, uh, for better or for worse. But hey, it's all working towards good stuff, so it's all right. Do that. Uh, and second, a second point I want to say is to recognize the world's needs and respond with compassion and action. Um, in Matthew nine thirty-six, we read, And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, felt compassion for them. Um, we often sing a song by Hillsong called Hosanna, and there's that line in the song that says, "You know, break my heart for what breaks yours." And for uh, the longest time, I never sang that that line because I wasn't sh- I wasn't sure it was something that I was like prepared to deal with. I think we, if you view our, our worship songs as an actual conversation with God, you tend to take the words a little bit more heavily. Um, and so, I'd, for the longest time, I'd, I wasn't really wanting that or prepared to uh, have the weight of that, and I probably still am not, to be honest. But if you want to leave a legacy that inspires and transforms people into the future, you need to have a compassion like Jesus, and a compassion that comes from knowing Jesus. As Christians, we're called to be reflections, we're called to be images and imitators of Jesus. And Jesus saw people around him, and he was filled with compassion. Compassion. If the generations under us grow up seeing us filled with compassion, living with a heart that breaks for others, then we will have a generation of people determined to interact with the world in a positive way. They'll do it in different ways that we do it, but they will be determined to interact with the world in a positive way. We will be instilling in them the idea that people are worth something, that people have value, And not just just value because you add something to society or because you excel at something or because you make lots of money or you have lots of influence or because you can get something from them. Now, people are valuable and worth caring for because God says we are. We can be dirty, poor, wretched, but we are still valuable and worthy of love because we are made in the image of God and because God sees humanity as something of value. There's something very, very powerful about someone who sees need around them and not only noticing the needs, but the desire to move in a way that will help those needs. I've probably been the most convicted in my life when I see the way compassionate people treat others, when they notice someone who is doing all the work behind the scenes, Uh, when they take care of the person that I didn't even know was sick, uh, when, they, when they stay late and, and pack up, or they always offer to bring a meal with them. You know, it's, it's really, really easy to get through life being nice without ever taking the initiative to meet a need. You can be a really nice person without ever meeting anyone's needs. And I don't want a church filled with really nice people that never meet anyone's needs. So when we have a life that acts out this type of compassion, That is me looking at someone and saying, you are worth my love. You are worth my compassion, regardless of what you can give back. And that mentality is infectious and explosive. It doesn't just stick with one person, but it moves into groups and changes families and it builds cultures. If you want to leave a legacy, then learn to have compassion for people in the same way that Jesus did. But that itself can only come from a true and deep relationship with Jesus. And a good way to assess if you're leaving a good legacy in this area is to ask yourself, how do I treat the people that I don't like? How do I treat the people that have nothing to offer me? That's a good way to assess where your compassion levels are at. It's really easy to treat the people that you like well. But how do I treat the people that I don't like? Third point. To leave a godly legacy, you must disciple them. Or in other words, to instruct them, or to teach them, to direct them. Um, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 6 and 7 says this, And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And if we teach something enough, our children and people in our sphere will pick it up it will have an influence on them if you teach it enough. Have you noticed how when one person has a bit of an influence, it affects like all these other people on how they say certain things, and people start using a certain word or say things in a certain way? Um, For instance, I have a friend, Andy, who has a a tendency to use the word sick a lot. Um, Like, think, think of a number in your head and then double that number, And you're about halfway to how many times he says sick in a day. Um, And he has a way of saying it where the CK at the end is a real like to it. Um, So it's like a, a whip crack almost. Sick. And so he and I have done heaps and heaps of youth camps together. We've done like 16 youth camps together. And so there's a whole lot of campers over the course of like eight years who are under Andy who are just like whip cracking this word sick around all the time. Um, I was going to make fun of Pastor Chi and the words he uses, but he's not here. And it feels mean to make fun of him when he's not here. Amen? (laughs) So I won't won't make fun of him while he's not here. But did you know I used to be a dentist as well? No. (laughs) But I won't make fun of him while he's not here. So so. don't put this online. (laughs) But um, uh, I guess... (laughs) um, Cut that, cut that, cut that. Um, But I guess a personal example is that, like, my my dad, my father, thinks that Seinfeld is the greatest show ever made. And thank you, preach, yeah. Yeah. And he's told me this numerous times growing up, like, constantly. I don't know why he needs to tell me, but he told me constantly times growing up that is the greatest show ever made. Uh, And I would hear this over and over again. And every now and again on TV back in the day, they would have these Seinfeld marathons like once a year where they'd play every single episode of Seinfeld back to back to back over the course of a really long weekend. And we would try and sit up and watch as many Seinfeld episodes as we could together for these uh, marathons. So guess what I think is the greatest show ever made? Seinfeld. And it is. But like... Uh, but this isn't a type of brainwashing. Like, he's not like indoctrinating me, and we're not, this isn't going to get us labeled as a cult. Because there's a lot of things that my dad loves that I do not love. I still have a choice. But what it has done has given me a deep understanding of what dad loves and why he loves those things. Dad has taught me the subtleties and the greatness of the humour of Jerry Seinfeld. And so, I guess, when we take time to teach the younger people the truths of the gospel, it isn't forcing us. To have the same views and the same opinions as us. We're not forcing our beliefs onto them so that they have to copy us. It is us sharing with them what matters to us and why, in the hopes that they will develop an understanding and an appreciation for what God has done for us, but also for them. Sharing what matters to you is important. The way that the the verse in Deuteronomy structures it, it makes it seem like it's a daily, daily rhythm, a daily thing. Not because we are strict teachers that need to convert everyone to our line of thinking, but because it is something, because something this important to you actually plays an oversized role in your life. Your faith in Jesus plays a factor in all parts of your life. And so that teaching of Jesus will be a daily thing. That means we see opportunities in our everyday life to teach biblical principles, from the way that we respond to drivers on the road, to the way that we go about working, to the what we laugh at or listen to on the radio or the TV, the way we think about caring for others, the emphasis we put on family time, the emphasis we put on church arrival time, like this all factors down into our kids' brains and the people that we influence as brains. Like, my kids have no idea what coffee actually is other than it is a hot brown drink. Like, they know it is a hot brown drink. They don't know what it is. But they know mine and Rachel's coffee orders. Like, they, they know what we drink when we go to a cafe and they can order it for us. And it's because they see the emphasis that we put on coffee. like. Do they, do they see the emphasis that we put on prayer? Like, could they quote the way we pray? Do they see the emphasis that we put on devotions or repentance or forgiveness or hospitality or generosity or offerings or worship or any other important part of our faith? Like, do we even have those things as an important part of our life? Like... Our kids can name our favorite like hot drinks and songs and movies and foods and they can make fun of the, the phrases and you know the way we walk and talk and like they can make fun of us because they know us so well and they see us. But do they can they recall the way that we pray? Like, can they name our go-to Bible verse? Like, do they know your testimony? Do your kids know, or do the people you influence know how you came to know the Lord? Take time to instruct. To teach, to lead the next generation, we have an obligation to learn and to teach, and a good way to assess your strength in this area is to ask this simple question of, what are the things that I make time for? What are the priorities in my day? What are the things that I feel passionately about? What are the things I make time for? What are the priorities in my day, and what are the things I feel passionately about? And lastly, to leave a legacy, you must encourage them. Every generation is desperate for inspiration and for motivation from the generation before them. I can, I think we can all remember a time in our lives when it felt like the older generations were just there to tell us that all the things that we were doing wrong and how loud we are and how we don't do things the way that they used to do things and how much more committed they were than us. Luckily, obviously, it doesn't happen here, but I've been to other churches where I've heard it happened. So that's good. But, like, can you imagine? (laughs) But, like, long after you've left a room, your voice and your intentions will still be heard. Long after you've finished saying what you feel that you need to say, your words will keep on talking. Uh, James chapter 3 says this. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body, It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil and full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord, our Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. Surely, brothers and sisters, that is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out, both fresh water and bitter water? What comes out of your mouth is a really, really powerful thing. There is no way to tangibly measure like how much encouragement affects other people. But there is a saying that says, instruction does much, but encouragement does more. So instruction does much, but encouragement does more. There's a whole lot of truth to this. When we speak words of encouragement, we are giving approval, we are showing interest, we are displaying love, we are investing into the future. I know a lot of us have like investments and properties and shares and stonks and all that sort of stuff. Encouragement is an investment into the future that will reap rewards. Encouragement says, I want to see you succeed. Encouragement says, I respect you. And the opposite of encouragement is not just rejection or disapproval or correction. The opposite of encouragement can just be silence. The opposite of encouragement can be skepticism and cynicism. The opposite of encouragement can be dismissal. And I can tell you from personal experience that getting silence, getting skepticism, getting cynicism, getting dismissal, is hard and heartbreaking sometimes, especially as a young person trying to find out how they can be a part of a kingdom movement. This type of response can be a real punch in the guts. And all of us have someone who's either uh, younger than them in age or in a position where they are less experienced uh, than us in something. And this means that we all have an opportunity to give encouragement to someone Every one of us can be a bearer of encouragement. It is a gift that genuinely just keeps on giving. Um, This is such a silly story, but I remember I I was leading one of these camps with my friend Andy. um, And I told this young guy who was leading on camp, I said, you are a good egg. Like my literal words, my literal words were, you are a good egg. Uh, to me, it was an offhand comment that I didn't think much of and I didn't think it would mean really much to anyone Let alone this guy because he was a bit of a dirtbag at times He wasn't the best egg um, But at the end of camp, he wrote me a letter like he actually took the time a young teenage boy took the time to write me a letter Saying how i um, saying that no one had told him that they thought he was a good person ever Or in this instance a good egg No one had told him that they saw good in him. And that for me to think of him in this way was monumental for him. And he wrote me a letter because I called him a good egg. We have always known that words have power. So that when we use our words to build up, we are giving power to people. You are giving power to people when you build them up. Our encouraging words are life-bringing and life-building. Your words are building people's lives. And if you want to assess whether you are leaving a legacy of encouragement, you need to ask yourself firstly, am I giving people enough attention to notice the good that I want to call out? And secondly, if I have something to say to someone, are they more likely to expect criticism or encouragement from me? Basically, if this person is walking towards me, am I assuming that they're going to criticize me or encourage me? So if you want to leave a good and godly legacy, I challenge you to consider these things. To be an example of the character traits that you want to see in younger people or people that you have influence over. To recognize the needs around you and respond with compassion and action. To disciple people, to teach people, to instruct people in the things that are important. Not just like that Seinfeld is the greatest show ever, but like how to raise a good family, how to be a good friend, how to deal with conflict, how to love people, how to manage your expectations and your doubts, how to prioritize faith. Teach people these things. And fourthly, encourage people. Just be an encourager. Speak good words to people. Give them power through the way that you talk to them. I know this was a very practical message, but I really hope it was helpful because we really want to see this church grow. And I don't mean numerically or mass. Like, I want us to grow as just, like, followers of Jesus. Like, I want us to, like, love Jesus. And we don't do that on our own. Like, we don't do that in silos. We don't do that individually. We do this together. And we need a good and healthy community for us to do that together. And we want to leave something good behind as well. And so I'm hoping that this practical message is, is helpful in that, that step. And it's the last of our devotional series. And as of next week, we're starting our new series, More Than Able, which is the theme for this year. Um, And as I I encourage you guys to make sure that you come along for the next four weeks, Um, I'll be preaching next week and doing a bit of a deep dive into the theology and the biblical truths that set up this theme of more than able um, as to why we would ever even believe that God is more than able. What does the Bible teach us about the sovereignty and the power of God? Uh, And so please make sure that you're connecting with us as we begin this next series.